afternoon and welcome to Ice Topica here on Resonance 104.4 FM with me Simon Tishka. Um, on today's Isotopica I have a very special guest, Professor Stephen Farthing, who is a professor of drawing, in fact the Roosting Hopkins Chair of Drawing Research at Academy of the Arts or Institute of the Arts or Chelsea School of Art whichever way you want to look at it and we'll be discussing lines I think more than anything else and to Top Taylor I'll be playing some Alvin Lucier who very much worked with the line the line of the wire and the pieces are sounds on the wire so we've got Alvin Lucier drawing the line Stephen Farthing describing and showing lines, lines that describe lines that were drawn three and a half, four, maybe five thousand years ago, which draw a direct line through to Marcel Duchamp, Braque, and the very, very present day. It's really, actually quite gripping stuff. Hope you enjoyed today's show, pin back your ears, and I shall stop withering in my withering way. This is Antishka. This is I stop again. Thank you. 
Right, so there you go. So we're actually recording now. So here we are at this door, and I love, I love doors and signs and things. And we recently did a talk with Dudley Sutton, mm-hmm. and he's got Dudley Sutton on his door. And we just don't get that these days. But here, we've got really nice and formally Professor Stephen Farthing, RA, Roostine Hopkins Chair of Drawing, University of the Arts London. So let's go in the room. Okay. And you can tell us about Roostine Hopkins Chair. What does this mean? Well, um, it... Um the story starts in uh, a shop window, probably, which is that um, there, was a, there is a company called Ruston Hopkins. The um, models? Yeah, who make the uh, uh, fiberglass models. To, West Kensington? Yep. Ah. To pose uh, clothes on in shop windows. Uh-huh. And there was a chap called Rick Hopkins who um, married somebody called Adele Rutstein. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, when Adele died, Rick uh, ran, kept on running the company, and then he married somebody who's been a great supporter of the university called Deirdre Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And um, when Rick finally died, he left a large sum of money to the university to um, instate a professor of drawing. And um, he, th- what he wanted was somebody who wouldn't just teach drawing as um, a thing that fell out of fine art or mm. an artist, but somebody who would think about drawing across the spectrum of courses that um, a university might offer. So how mathematicians use drawing, Beautiful. how cartographers, mm-hmm. um, and then obviously in fashion design, architecture. And so I was appointed to this post, um, although I am a fine artist, um, uh, to look at it, look at drawing as a big broad subject and that's what I've been doing for the last seven years. That's beautiful. Are you the first? Yes, yes, ah. yes and probably the only chair in the UK that is devoted to this idea of looking at drawing um, beyond the realms of fine art mm. and um, it's really how it works with literacy, how it works in uh, you know building construction industry but uh, it's like it's not a language drawing, I don't think. It's a, it's a, a way of communicating and putting down information. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm thinking that's that. Because it, as you've opened it up, I mean, you just come to the notion of, of drawing, think a piece of paper and drawing, but instantly you've opened it up to all of these things. The idea of the mathematicians, blueprints, all of these things. Um, and not being a language, but a way of communicating. Yeah. So fundamentally, drawing thinking mark on paper. Yeah. But then that extends way off, doesn't it? You must be looking. Yeah, and there's lots of room for. You see, the thing about writing, which I I suppose is drawing's nearest neighbour, and annotation, which would be like musical annotation or dance annotation, those are the neighbours of drawing. But the big difference between drawing and writing is that writing is the um, two-dimensional rendering of the spoken word mm-hmm. and it ha- it's, it's all tied together by an alphabet which is this one-to-one equivalency of yeah. letters and sounds mm-hmm. and um, drawing doesn't really have an equivalent I mean it does in, in certain sorts of cartography where there's a key mm-hmm. uh, or a legend at the edge and it legend, says that's a nice it, term, it, isn't it, it yeah. says you know this curly thing is a tree and this pointy thing is grass and a square with a 
cross on top is a church with a tower and you learn these symbols and then it becomes a little bit like writing mm. but when you look at a drawing by Rembrandt there is no one-to-one equivalency it's a it's a person putting emotion and what they've seen and improvising and they're making something up on the spot so um, it's probably drawing is closer to the spoken word than the written word mm. that's really nice it's a nice idea and with your practice before being approached to do this chair would you consider drawing to be a fundamental part of your practice or is this something that's that you've developed as part of this? Well, I think that it's something I felt guilty about. I, I, the, the, I went to art school in 1969, I went to St Martin's, and at that time you were still expected to draw before you made. Yeah, you know? of course. It My was, drawing class is part of the, the fundamental. Yeah. It was a warm-up process or some kind of designing process, some preparatory process, but everybody was supposed to draw. But of course, Everybody, you know, all the students I was with were all looking for shortcuts to avoid doing that. And uh, we spent probably a lot of time avoiding drawing. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that's probably not true now. I mean, I, I rather love drawing. I kind of prefer it to painting and taking photographs and doing okay. lots of other more concrete things. But, yeah, I, I went to art school at a time when you were expected to draw. Mm-hmm. So I, I suppose I've always felt slightly guilty that I didn't draw enough. Or, you know, it was a bit like coming up with the answers without doing the workings out, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I just want to get the answers down. And so actually this working in this job has allowed me to um, make an honest man of myself in that I draw a lot now. That's nice. The guilt's gone. Okay, that's good. <laughs> so should we have a look at your yes. boxes here? Well, look. I thought I'd show you these because this is a recent project that I'm working on, mm-hmm. and um, the uh, gist of it is really that I have been looking in odd places at drawing, and one of the places is um, uh, on pieces of stone uh, that were chipped off of large blocks of stone by the ancient Egyptians when they were building the Valley of the Kings. Uh, in Luxor. Okay. And a um, hundred or so years ago, the, they were excavating in um, a, a village where the workers lived who constructed the Valley of the Kings, and they found these big piles of stones. And on the stones, there's writing and drawing. And the stones are about the size of my hand, about the size of the palm of my hand. They're chips that have been taken off when they're working a stone block. Mm-hmm. So they have one flat face and the rest of it is, you know, a bit like the back of my hand, you know, it's yeah, a kind yeah. of curved shape. And they would draw on these stones. And um, draw using? Draw using something a bit like a felt tip pen. It was a chewed up reed. So they'd take a reed, mm-hmm. chew the end of it till it became soft, and then dip it in ink. And so it wasn't a nib. And yeah. it wasn't a brush. Okay. It, was, it was like a Sharpie that you could draw An with. Ancient Egyptian felt-tip pen. Exactly. Like, you know, I think they kind yeah. of... Uh, 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 they must have invented the idea of the soft nib mm. as opposed to the short brush. Mm-hmm. And um, they drew with these things. And it seems as though... There, well, there are some stones that are definitely drawing lessons. People being taught to draw, and they would sketch on them. There are others where people are trying ideas out, and others where they draw from life. Now... I think just about everybody uh, imagines that Egyptians draw people who look sideways, have one arm uh, in front of the other, 
one leg in front of the other and everything is visible and it's all done on a grid and it's as flat as a pancake mm -hmm. and it looks like it's done with a ruler and a compass. Mm. But in fact they did a lot of freehand drawing and I'll, I'll, I'll show you a, a, a funny one to start with which is of um, a bull. Um, but the bull is um, taking a leak. Okay. And so, you know, what you find in these drawings, which they are 1,400 years before Christ, there are ancient Egyptians wandering around with bits of stone in their hand, drawing the rear end of a cow pissing. Yeah. And you suddenly realise that it isn't all about the pharaohs and a grid and a sense of order. It's actually about a sense of life, disorder, having a bit of fun, and people actually learnt trying to train their hand to make images of the world as they saw it. And very much, I mean, here, so you've got the little dots of pea going out. Yep. And that's that's what you saw in the drawing. That's that is that, a drawing of an Egyptian that's the drawing. drawing. Of it, yeah, and it's is. about that size. I mean, I think of the you know the attempts to capture motion with the first motion ca um, cameras and things like that to yes. see what's going on. Yes. Or a child's drawing, that's, that's how you draw pee, isn't it? Or water or anything. But look, here's another drawing that I did, which you just said capture motion. This is a, a man playing a harp, and he's seated. And this was drawn about um, six, six, seven hundred years before Christ. Um, in Luxor, you know, same place with the Valley of the Kings. Now, it's a man playing a harp. It, the first time I looked at the drawing, it was very, very confusing because um, he had two hands, both plucking strings at the harp. Mm -hmm. But both hands and arms appeared to be on the same side of the body. And I realised, actually, that what it was was that he'd drawn the harpist in two positions. One where you're seeing him square on, and so you see his shoulder coming towards you. And then one when he's leaning forward and he's reaching further across the harp. That's, that's, that's an absurd compression, that's like Brock or something. <laughs> You've you got it in one you know, yeah. it, it, it does become a kind of cubism. Yeah, of course. Oh. And that's not the harp. <laughs> no, that's um, the phone. Sorry, I'll turn it off. That's okay. Um, so, I, you know, what I have discovered recently is that um, this extraordinary amount of inventive observational drawing going on mm. one and a half thousand years before Christ in an area that you'd never imagine it would happen. And it was being, it wasn't only being done, but it was being taught. And here's a kind of a drawing where we know, more or less certainly, um, it's drawn by a student and then corrected by a teacher. Mm -hmm. And the custom at that time was that. Um, the student would draw in black and the teacher would correct in red. And um, that is, you know, actually something when I went to school, the teacher had a red biro and okay. they'd scroll all of over course. my black writing. Yeah. Now here, um, we, it's an image, it's a very, very simple line drawing of, uh, of what is thought to be a baker. And he's holding a stone and he's holding a piece of unleavened bread and he's shaping it on the stone. Mm -hmm. But the student has drawn the baker as a fat man and the teacher has come along and put a line straight through the extended stomach so he becomes a thin man. There goes the belly. So look, should we say it was a commission then? <laughs> 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 but, 
so you you know from this very simple drawing mm -hmm. you can pick up the fact that you know obviously there was a sense of perhaps not wanting produced too many images that were of fat men and they wanted thinner men and there mm -hmm. was a, an idea of a norm within drawing but the other point is that he, he these were drawn in chips of stone as i said and the student didn't get the feet on mm. and the teacher has put a red line where the feet are missing presumably saying to the student next time draw it a bit smaller and make sure you get the feet on the stone because you can't leave bits off yeah. Um, and there are a number of stones like this. There's a, a picture of a naked woman here. And um, there are lots of these images um, in Luxor on these little stones. Um, many of the finer ones now are in the museum in Cairo and in the Met. And we've got some in the British Museum here in London. Mm -hmm. And um, clearly, dating back to 1400 BC, uh, people were interested in drawing the naked human figure. Um, some considerable time before you know the life class at the academy. There's a tremendous compression of time coming in here. Yeah. Of, of, of we think of modernism and great and how progressive and here you're finding it. But tell, tell me back to the pile of stones. You say they were more or less discarded and lost. Well, I I think that you know the guess is that they were seen as nothing more than throwaway pieces of. Uh, practice. Yeah. They were of no intrinsic value. Okay. They were. I mean, the, the, the scholars write about them, although they are they're kind of sketchbooks. They're notebooks. Mm -hmm. And as with you know a lot of people's notebooks, unless they're done by famous people, they tend to get thrown away. Of course. And so this it, it wasn't an archive. It was a mm. heap of discarded stones. Yeah, there's um, so much richness in that. But I suppose the thing was that they, they, they've survived because they weren't scraps of paper. Mm. And But they're a once-only surface. You, could, you know, I mean, I suppose you could have scraped it away, but actually it soaks into the stone. So yeah. there's, once what, drawn, what sort of ink, just out of te technical curiosity? Um, do you know, I don't know what the ink's made of. It's black or red. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, most blacks at that time were, pro were carbon. So it probably was from... Uh, either burnt bone or burnt vegetable matter. Mm. Um, but, um, the, I mean, actually, they're still very black, these drawings, some three and a half thousand years later. Yeah. Um, probably being in the desert helps, you know. Beat your heart dry. out quick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, they, they would have been long gone. And, uh -huh. You know, these are other drawings here. There's one of a man beating a gazelle to death with a club. Right. Um, there's some pretty straightforward drawings of cattle. And... Um, these are beautiful, they really are beautiful. And I, you know, in the course of this, see, I have this wonderful job which allows me to go to Cairo and work in the museum mm -hmm. and go and visit these things and mm -hmm. I go to the British Museum. This is the biggest, um, the, the, the stones, by the way, are called ostraca. Nice. Um, uh, uh, that's the plural and the singular is ostracon. Okay. And it can mean also pieces of pottery that have been written or drawn on, but it, this is the, I suppose, the ephemeral note and drawing taking from the ancient world was done on bits of rigid stuff because at this point um, there was no paper yeah. and pap papyrus was expensive um, that's and very so, high end yeah. very, so if yeah. you were training a student to draw mm -hmm. you would do it on a piece of stone ostracum and here is a drawing lesson this um, is predominantly drawn in red now there's a reversal of the um, uh, uh, well, no, there isn't a reversal, actually, sorry. Um, it's drawn by the teacher. And what you can see here is that the teacher is talking about how to draw a figure. And 
and he, he starts or she starts with a stick figure yeah and then goes on to do a fleshed out stick figure so instead of it just being a single line it's uh, two lines that give a bit of volume to the body and the legs mm -hmm. and then there is this fully grown figure and the figure has a monkey sitting on his shoulder. Monkey? There's a monkey there. I thought it was a cat when I looked at it. Well, yeah. I mean, we're, I, guess, we're guessing I think the, here, aren't I we? think the legs are a bit long, but it... it <laughs> <laughs> but you, you I, could I anthropomorphise oh, no, cats. Also, I, to me, also so. I think the lack of bushiness in the tail, but who Very knows? Good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll consider it maybe a cat. <laughs> so, so there are two really important things going on here, uh -huh. and we learn that from the black ink. Now, one of the ways that people learn to draw, and it appears always have learned to draw, is by tracing. And so the, here, the student is drawing round the teacher's red line, or over the teacher's red line with a black line. And the teacher has clearly said to him, her, um, draw the head and the cat, or the uh, uh, monkey, as I yeah. think it is, um, uh, over in black. And so they're learning this basic thing of going around outlines. But then, if we go to one of the figures, the teacher... That's interesting. The slide slid. <laughs> um, the teacher has said, put some clothes on that figure, and so they put a dress on. Yeah. And then the final part of the lesson is draw your own fleshed out stick figure. So on this stone from 1500, 1500 years before Christ, we see a drawing lesson preserved. That's genius, isn't it's it? It's genius. It's beyond. I mean, it's actually quite um, overwhelming in many senses. And here's... A Beautiful drawing of a foal uh, scratching its face on its hoof. Mm -hmm. And um, that's eight, uh, 700 BC, again just drawn on a little piece of stone. And clearly drawn from life. Nobody could make that up. No. It's too good, unless somebody had drawn a thousand of them and then they could just do them straight. Very, very delicate line. Yeah. Very beautiful. And what's interesting is that the, the you know, these, uh, what I can tell you is in ancient Egyptian drawing mm. is that one of the obsessions was making the line as long as possible so that um, if we came to this drawing of a crouching figure they would make one line go from the shoulder all the way down the arm round the elbow down to the tips of the fingers and then back up to the bend of the elbow so almost like calligraphy where it, the, the the brush doesn't leave the paper exactly that so yeah. typically when an ancient egyptian drew an animal they would start at the tip of the tail mm. and follow the tail up and then go over the back of the animal and then down the neck and of course that is anatomically absolutely spot on because yeah. those are the vertebrae yes and it would get that line then it would probably take um, a line that went from the top of the head round the nose up through the underbelly and stop just by one of the rear legs mm -hmm. and then they put the legs in so this is a um, eleven-line drawing of a horse. Sensational. A really beautiful drawing of a horse, mm -hmm. done with three lines. Yeah. And the baker that we talked about earlier was done with fifteen lines, and most of the lines were tied up with describing the hands, the bread, and the stone. Mm -hmm. The body was the main part of the body was constructed yeah. with three lines. Real fluid movement. So what you can know we go, is can we go back to this, this, mm. this drawing behind this one? I mean, here this looks like Matisse. Yes. It's just there. Yeah. I mean, yes. if, if, if I saw that, that would be a sketch for a, a Matisse, an early Matisse piece or yeah. something. And it's this a, is three, four hundred years, nine hundred years before Christ. Yeah. And what, you, what, you, what we're looking at is somebody who is turning a figure into a beautiful shape. Mm. 
and they're turning it into a beautiful shape by seeing a kind of triangular form which is made by the arms reaching up to their breast mm -hmm. and then another triangular form which is made by the crouching legs coming up to the waist and so it's pivotal it's kind of symmetrical around the waist yeah. of these two shapes and so what we know is the person who drew it wasn't mm -hmm. just drawing a person they were interested in the shapes that person was making yes and that's quite a that's really big, advanced that's very advanced yeah, I mean, because that's, that's coming up to abstraction isn't and, it where you, and poetic yeah. and it's it it's not about survival it's about the lyrical yes and uh, it's kind of interesting that we got to this as a you know civilization on this earth so early mm. in that um, I suppose the, the other story of art is that you know well it's all about people drawing woolly mammoths and then uh, learning to paint kings but this these Egyptian drawings I think tie what Matisse as you say was doing directly to what was happening 3,000 mm. years earlier mm. and it seems as though people's concerns haven't changed that much which, which is lovely. That's, that's really yeah, lovely. I mean, it makes me feel good. Mm. And it also, um, you know, it, it raises very serious questions about what is progress. You know, this idea that mm. we were becoming more and more sophisticated. I don't, I don't think we were. We were in some areas. We were, um, uh, we weren't... Um, uh, well, this is, how, this is how art beautifully sort of echoes out into the fundamental questions of how, what, why. <laughs> yeah. Now I'll show you. I'll show you a completely different project, which okay. um, uh, was um, also done whilst uh, you know whilst being the professor of drawing here. And um, these are drawings that um, started life uh, in New Zealand, where I was uh, at the University of Auckland, and I became interested in tattoos as drawings. Okay. And as you know, Maoris um, are famous for having tattooed sure. faces. And mm -hmm. I think it's when you know the first tattoos that Westerners saw were probably from New Zealand and certainly from the South Seas. Mm -hmm. And it was Captain Cook's yeah. first voyage of discovery. And I, I, I think prior to that, we had no real knowledge of tattooing. Mm -hmm. And um, it, what interested me was that I, because I was working in a culture where I was able to talk to Maori people and talk about these facial tattoos was that um, what what they told what was the point of them and of course, the point of them is that they are like um, calling cards they are in heraldic terms um, the family coat of arms oh, really so that the one side of the face tells you the history of the uh, mother's side of the family and the other the patriarchal side of the family okay, so a Maori who could read a facial tattoo would be able to tell you who these pe who who this person's parents were what they had done what land they lived on and so it is in heraldic terms a complete achievement it it tells you everything about the person so they weren't to scare off the enemies or make themselves look more beautiful quite the reverse they were to um to present who you were when you arrived, so like a calling card. Yeah. But also, um, you know, they clearly were to show how important you were, because the more tattoos you had, the better. You know, I mean, the, the, 
And what it started me looking at it were the original drawings that um, Captain Cook's artist did of tattooed faces. And one of the funny things was that they clearly didn't fully understand the, the, the tattoos weren't symmetrical. And so they would sometimes just draw one side of the face and then fill the rest in later. Okay. And so it would appear that mm. the person had two fathers or two mothers. I was, I was going to say, because I was assumed, I instantly, when you started talking about that, I came instantly had the idea that it would be symmetrical. Yeah, they're not. And apparently the real detail is in the very edges where it hits up against the ears and around the neck. Uh And the little twists and turns at the ends of the pattern are what tell you the real detail. Okay. And that there's a, I think, in the very centre of the face. It's symmetrical about the nose. Right. And in the very centre of the face, um, there's... uh, It's more general. So I said about making a series of drawings where I, um, at first looked at tattoos and copied them and then I thought um, I should invent some. So I, I, they've become like dream images of um, uh-huh. people thinking about boats and stories and... Um, I wish this one here looks like the mathematical equations there. Yes, that's, that is an Einsteinian one where he's um, Lovely. thinking about stuff. but. The, as drawings, what interests me about these is that they, you know you probably call them watercolours, and um, the in nineteenth um, century watercolour painting was seen very much as a part of drawing. Okay. And today we tend not to think of it in that way. Mm-hmm. So there was a kind of subplot going on in all of these, looking at the difference between you know what might be a painting, and what might be a drawing. I see them as wet drawings. That's what I, I, they. they there. I think I've per- personally I've learned not to name things too much because it's very much a part of your practice and where it is at that moment, you know, the notion of when, when something becomes a painting, when it becomes thicker. Mm. I mean, yeah, that's the you know, question. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely no, no idea there. Here's one with a credit card okay. tattooed on their face. It's an Abbey National Visa card. Yeah. Um, Abbey don't exist anymore, do they? But, uh, Probably so, not. My work takes me to look at lots of different cultures. Um, Not always so deep in the past. I mean, one of the stranger sets of drawings I've looked at that are in the New York Public Library are um, by uh, uh, Shakers, you know, religious sects. Yeah, are they Christian? Christian Shakers, are they? Yeah, yeah, they they started in Manchester, I think, and went to America for religious freedom. And they formed communities... uh, where they received messages from um, the spirit world and um, they all seemed to get on very nicely but it was fundamentally flawed because they were um, celibate so they died out (laughs) you got yeah it was kind of they kind of got something wrong at the very beginning. Yeah. Were they were they commune based? They were. They were they very very tight. Yes. Yeah, so. Communing movement at very early. Yeah. And um, but interestingly, in the third generation of Shakers, uh, they allowed um, people to draw, whereas in the first two generations they they had no images whatsoever, no imagery, not even maps. Mm. And um, uh, but as it seemed as though their relationship with spiritual world was breaking down. They decided that drawings might be very useful teaching instruments. So there are, God, I think it's 200 Shaker drawings only. Wow. And they're mostly in New York State. Mm-hmm. And they don't call them drawings. They call them um, gifts. 
because the idea is they were gifts from the spirit world and it wasn't an individual making up this drawing okay. it all they did was faithfully record a vision mm. and so they was they saw themselves as conduits by which the vision got on the paper beautiful mostly made by i think the the shaker artists, i think there were something like 19 or 20 of them and they were all in well generally they were female and between about 18 and 25 mm -hmm. years old and um they tended to be really quite strange, extravagant drawings of visionary moments with and like writing on them that was in tongues mm -hmm. and um, images of difficult journeys and they sometimes have angels in them and recognisable things. So uh, outsider, outsider art? Very much so. I mean, they, if, you, if I was going to try and describe, well, what do they look like? They look a bit like sewn samplers Beautiful. done with a rough hand. Yeah. But because they had no visual traditions in Shaker culture, I mean, they made beautiful furniture, mm -hmm. they made beautiful barns, um, uh, but they, they didn't have a pictorial side to their culture. Um, it really comes out of a kind of folk art. Yeah. But that's, you know, there's a really interesting side of drawing because it's done by people with an intense religious belief yeah. who had no view of themselves as being anything more than, you know, like a, a, a machine that was logging down lines sent by the spirit world to them. We kind of go back to before we start recording, talking about spectrum. Yes. And when you think of the, the people on the autistic spectrum very famously that are able to do these photorealistic drawings and that intense degree of drawing. Yes. It's, it's, just, it's curious how that comes in and then sort of latches onto the shakers there. Yeah. yeah. Automation, automatic writing. Things. It's, such, it's, it's, it's a, the language of drawing, the things you're describing, ties in with so many things in our culture. Yeah. I think, you know, and I think it's one of the things that goes wrong in our schools at the moment is that um, we were all encouraged to stop drawing too soon mm. and uh, to let writing dominate and see drawing as a secondary, mm -hmm. probably slightly more juvenile activity. Mm -hmm. And it gets consigned to the um, art room and uh, it's um, not part of uh, most people's the roundedness of what could be somebody's education and I, I suspect if people were kept drawing a lot longer, not drawing from life but actually trying to explain things by drawing them. Mm. I mean it's, it, it's an interesting exercise talking about drawing on the radio um, because um, <laughs> you know I can see what I'm talking about but yeah. can, can the listener picture it? I, 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 I mean, you know, just let that question hang, I think, yeah. it's up, up, up to there, but you've introduced me to thinking about drawing in a way that I've not really considered, and very strongly just the associations you're making, the notion of, um, talking about kids drawing, and I think of battleships and guns, I remember one of the things we always used to draw when I was a yeah. kid was aeroplanes with the little dotted lines coming yeah. and shooting, yeah. and that ties in with that three and a half thousand year old picture of uh, cattle peeing, yeah. horse or cattle, what did we see? Cattle, cattle yeah. peeing, yeah. 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 little dotted line, yeah. um, and so there you've got hum a human describing the world in this dotted line. Yeah. That joins up very much. Yeah, right yeah, yeah. And, and you can see the, the intelligence that's gone into producing the dotted line because um, what they were obviously not wanting to do was let the audience confuse the trail of pee 
with the tail. Yeah. And if they'd made it a solid line, it would look like another tail. Well, dotted line, it suggests animation as well, doesn't it? The different frames, because yeah. that's movement, yeah. as you say, the, yeah. the delineation. And I think what happened, there was that slight twist. You introduced such a big idea there. When I saw the Brach mm. tying with that, and I kind of almost had to hold the edge of my chair, hang on, that's a kind yeah. of real compression. And that dotted line, our humanity, there's been no change. And you talk about progress. Yeah. yeah. You know, because we have this notion we're terribly modern, we're really. Yeah. Progress. yeah. But, but what progress? All that modern art is difficult. Oh, modern art is difficult. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, it, 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 clearly artisans in ancient Egypt were able to deal conceptually the idea of a moving <laughs> figure in in a static image yeah because um, there's there's notions of i think uh, the idea of perspective only coming in at a certain point yeah but you know we're seeing where where you're showing the harp player there and um, in different positions they're dealing with perspective by drawing the harp player in a number of different times I yeah mean, that's that's such a leap forward and actually if i can just show you this drawing here this is a very this is a very early drawing mm. of a bull and um it's um this is probably two thousand years um two and a half thousand years before after before christ before christ so with four and a half thousand years uh -huh. ago this drawing was made and you know, the, the body of the bull is fairly square on, but what's interesting is that the way the horns have been drawn... There's perspective there. There's perspective there. Yeah. there. And, you know, you, you, you see this happening in something like the Bayeux Tapestry, which is 1066 in England, mm. or 1067. And there are little... the beginnings of a perspectival image. And it's because the horn that was furthest away from the person looking at the animal did appear to be smaller. Mm -hmm. And I think they just intuitively... Uh, somehow made the whole nearer bigger and the one further away smaller and they were working in perspective without a clue of what they were doing sure but it, 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 as soon as you see one of these drawings of bull's horns there's no other part of the animal that isn't flat mm. except for the horns and they somehow got that space between the two points of the horn and going across the top of the head to flip in space <laughs> so it looked as though the bull's head was moving yeah and, um, I mean, you know, it, it yeah. could be it's just a series of happy accidents, but um, that's what happens when you draw from life, yeah. and you don't draw from a concept, you know, the concept of the flat thing on the grid yeah. is how we learnt about Egyptian drawing. Can, can I um, talk, talk about these yeah. ones again? They're, I like your annotations on here, the numbers and things. I mean, first, uh, they're, yeah. I'm really quite drawn to that. Is that, that's obviously marking, well, I say obviously, but they're markings for you to refer to certain things, or is that, uh, am I looking at something that's almost finished there? It's it's um, it, it's a finished drawing. Oh great! Okay. But the but the annotation, which are these numbers, are my estimation of how many lines it took to draw that drawing, okay. and also the order in which they were drawn. Uh -huh. See, one of the things about every drawing, if, if it's handmade, is that it contains a lot of forensic evidence um, that is difficult to see often in a painting, and you can really never see it in a photograph. Uh -huh. And that is how it was was made, and yeah. you can see roughly how hard the person pushed, mm -hmm. where they made changes, where one brush stroke end and another one started, and from that you can deduce how long it took to draw. Mm. You know, that would have been drawn in about 30 seconds. Yeah. Somebody's just gone wham, 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 wham. Mm -hmm. That drawing of a naked woman, it was a lot slower, and you could see that they were wrestling with trying to make some nice shapes. Yeah. And um, 
they did quite a good job. So I think that was drawn much, much slower. And because you can see those things, I, I, it, it, you can learn quite a lot about how people made things. Well, you can see those things yeah. because you're, you're, you're able to analyse. And, and I like bringing that word forensic. You're able to examine it in a forensic way. Yeah, you see so every erasure, and, yeah. and of course there there are no erasures on these drawings, which is it's fantastic. In, yeah, of course. So what we know is they they were good at doing it. <laughs> and the baker, I love this. These really are gorgeous, really gorgeous. What what um, do you see these framed presentations? Yes. About that well, I do. Do you know what I'm going to do with them? Yeah. Sort of step one is that um, I'll go back to the British Museum where I started and sit and talk very much like I'm talking with you mm. to the um, uh, chief uh, curator in the Egy Egypt department yeah and um, you know because you see I don't know anything about the archaeology of Egypt really you know I mean what I know about is drawing and what I'm looking at are drawings so I'm not another historian and um, I've in a way taken a lot of trouble not to read in depth about these things. I mean, there isn't a massive amount of literature about them. There are a couple of books. Mm. But, um, and I want to talk to him about them. And when I've talked about them to somebody who knows a lot more than I do about what they are, I'm going to decide what to do with them. That makes perfect sense, yeah. And I don't think, so I don't really know their status. That's yet. a really nice routine. Um, it could make a really nice textbook on drawing. Mm. Could make a really nice exhibition of beautiful things. In which case, I might do some of them much larger and turn them into real celebrations, as mm. opposed to note takings. Yeah. I mean, just with the the, the explanations you've given, I've been particularly taken with these ones. The Egyptian, the explanations you've given. It's a, a beautiful book, a beautiful many things. There, um, I've really seriously taken me, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> because, you, do you know, do you know, I mean, yeah. if, 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 you know, I have rather avoided talking about art and just talked about drawing, but, you know, I think that one of the um, uh, pivotal bits of information that I carry with me when I think about, well, you know, I'm supposed to be an artist, I'm, mm. I, I live a life where I'm supposed to be one yeah. of those people called artists, yeah. is that it seems to me there's very little art that doesn't come out of other art. You know, it, yeah. it, it, that, you know, really good artists, you can see where they've come from, you see mm -hmm. who grandfathered them, yeah. you can see where their sense of order came from by looking at other art. You, 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 you know, they don't, people, it seems to me, don't just arrive out of the blue. Artists don't arrive out of the blue. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's very important to understand when looking at art is to understand the history, the place. I mean, yeah. as an artist, that's why we study art, is to become part of the place. And when you look at drawings like that, which take us back 3,000 years, 4,000 years, and there's a direct line yeah. between what we're seeing there. And, and our front and, door. And our front and door. And my office door. Exactly, yeah. that office yeah. door. That's, yeah. that's, that's a really important thing. And I think at the moment, uh, you saying that about you know, asking and not talking about drawing mm. rather than art, I'm getting a sense, I mean, when I sent you that email the other night, it was kind of a, I just made, you know, one bit of dialogue. Yeah. Personally, I'm having this kind of crisis in art, and I think there's a wider crisis in art. Interesting couple of articles this week, um, not remembering the names, but a very, very big American writer, curator, um, some documents are 
he's withdrawing. He's saying he's withdrawing in disgust. Really? From contempt the contemporary art world. Yes, yes. And there's this sense, this kind of ripple. He's of, gone off it. He's gone <laughs> off it and moved out. You know, it's like, you know, this stuff happens all the time. Yeah, it's no, not it's good, it's but good. It's really interesting yeah. this is happening. And enough's I, enough. I think there were, there, before I came out today, just checking my news feeds and things, there was another one going on. And you see this, I went to Freeze Art Fair um, couple of weeks ago yeah. there and I kind of left there with this similar feeling and there's there's something going on there's a crisis in modernity at yeah the there's a yeah. crisis in yeah. capitalism there's got to be a crisis in art yeah 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 if they have one on Wall Street we've got to have one on Cork Street yeah <laughs> <laughs> but you see what what you see if, if I was going to say well one of the reasons for the crisis there are probably a multitude of reasons but one of the reasons is that I do believe that um, we have got to a point in history where we're not looking very far out for new ideas. Mm. We're looking in a very, very small area. It's like we're looking in our own back garden. Yeah. And what we've forgotten is the business of exploration mm -hmm. and there being frontiers, you know, frontiers that are enormous, that are out there, that we don't cross, and that we provincialised ourselves. And so in an art school... Um, in London today, typically um, an art student will be aware of Marlene Dumas, um, Peter Doig, um, Tracy Emin, um, and a few other less well-known names in a, of, 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 that will vary from group to group. Yeah. But it will be really what we're looking at is the last 20 years. Uh -huh. That is the back garden. That's right. Dude. Now, yeah. you see, I think that if you... Um, uh, expand it a little and you even begin to look at the Renaissance or you begin to look at you know 18th century Paris or you know 15th century um, uh, Italy uh, students minds would be blown by it today mm. they would be so excited if mm -hmm. they were allowed into Vasari Vasari is brilliant you know there is nothing dull about Vasari of writing course. about the Renaissance but somehow it's all fallen off the menu and that what we've got is this kind of recent cuisine that the people have been fed. Now, so my theory is that why not go and look at Maori tattoos? Mm. Why not go and look at ancient Egyptian drawing? And try and feed the uh, menu again. Put some new things on the menu. And um, personally, I've become very excited by looking in extreme places. It's, yeah. Um, the, 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 like shakers. Like, yeah, the shakers. <laughs> Everybody looking at this was very exciting. And, and think of when um, Al Picasso and uh, at the beginning there, when the African figures came in, yeah. they saw the show in Paris yeah. and this, that and the other, and suddenly everything came from that. And of course, look at this, how that, that also ties yeah. through. It's about renewal. And, and, I, and I think that um, uh, it's a good time to consider radical renewal. Maybe that's, maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's what I'm talking about because one of the things with these big art events like Freeze mm. and, you know, Freeze Miami and all of the things, and what I saw was the same stuff everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got a marketplace, it's market driven. Yeah. And the market is squeezing. Yeah. what can be yeah. considered yeah. art into yeah. a very, very small thing, even though it's yeah. talked about how because exciting. What we know for certain is mm. that Duchamp, when he put a bicycle wheel in a stool, was not market-driven. Mm -hmm. When 
Picasso painted Damoiselle d'Avignon. He was not market driven. Mm. And when Malevich painted his Black Square, not market driven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you, I think you begin to, to suspect that there might be a weakness in market driven art. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there is no historical model. Mm. I mean, maybe in the Renaissance there was an extremely market driven art. I, I, but yeah. um, not in, in modern art, no. there is no model that's. Well, it's always been, I mean, not always, but think about where you have performance art as an attempt to mm. decommodify. You can't, you know, how do you possibly commodify performance? And so they were selling the brochures and the flyers and things or the documentation yeah. became the artwork that then became the commodity because yeah. the commodity is ephemeral it's gone yeah. and yet the same it, it, uh, yeah it goes round and round and round but then the wider the wider problems within the society of education mm. especially at the moment with the, the huge market changes where we're educated for a job afterwards yeah and educated for the sake of education yeah and, you know, yeah how important yeah. that is Curious stuff. I so, as I branch out into mad left field politics very yeah. quickly, but. Uh, so I, I, you know, back to this job. I'm, mm. I'm very happy to have it because I think it's a good job to have at the moment. Um, it, it, it's very, it's very green. You know, it, you don't consume anything drawing. Mm. It's just mm. you consume a little bit of paper, a little bit of ink, or a bit of pencil, but it costs virtually nothing. Yeah. And, you know, it may be, you know, the idea of putting up massive bronze statues and fantastically expensive light shows is, you know, something that is going to go away for a while. You know, the, the, the big celebratory high-tech resolution. Yeah. And um, so I'm, I'm kind of thinking of drawing as being a very nice way back into conceptual art and an and art that costs very little, yeah. but is, is kind of high on invention. That's um, a very radical statement, but it, may, it, it, it makes a certain sense. I mean, with uh, going to freeze once again, so many artworks, the technology that goes into them, you flick a switch, yeah. it's gone. Yeah. But, but this whole conversation comes from a pile of stones so many thousands of years ago yeah. that we're yeah. able to become excited about three and a half, four, five thousand years later. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And if, if, we, if us two could organise an exhibition of those stones collected up from around the world that are in collections uh, at a certain time gallery in London, it would be the most fantastic show. Yeah. It, it would really, really excite people. And, I mean, with where we are um, here, this particular location, the historical thing, I think back to the Carl Andre, the stones there. Yeah. I remember going back to, is that the 1970s? 70, where yes. All the headlines call this art. This yes. Art here. Yeah. And so we took the notion of stones. There's, there's something about location because, um, I mean, you've got this office here, and I think of Gully Simpson. Mm. Beautiful. Do you, do you know the film? Yeah. Of course, yeah, The Horse's yeah. Mouth. Yes, yes. And the artist there. Yeah. Well, this is an extraordinary place to have a studio. I mean, I, I was born in Fulham, and so know this part of London. But there is something about being in a studio that is next to the old Tate Gallery. Yeah, of course. On the river, mm. and strangely, you know, on the site of Millbank Penitentiary, we which didn't is know about the penitentiary. Yeah, this was a prison that it was based on Jeremy Bentham's designs. And it was a holding prison for uh, many of the people who were exported to Australia. Yeah. And there's something 
I, you know, I also, I'd be rather well prepared to go to prison because it, it, being somebody who draws and doesn't need a lot of equipment, yeah. just need more time and food yeah. and sleep, I, I, I think I could deal with it. Mm. But it's, it is interesting. I sometimes think of this studio as being a little bit like a cell in that, um, but I'm willingly lock myself up in here because mm. I know as soon as I set, set foot outside that door, my mind goes into a different space. Yeah. I'm no longer thinking about how an ancient Egyptian might have pushed an early felt tip pen around a piece of limestone mm. to make images of, that were funny and um, uh, they're basically well meant and you know they were good things. They were and by, still by, relevant three and a half thousand years yeah. later, four five thousand years later. And I think it, you know, and that's what professors are supposed to do, and that's what this little cell on the Thames bank, you know, on the embankment here, allows me to do. Mm. And um, yeah, I've had studios all over the place, and I've never had one that has so focused my thoughts. That's really important. Yeah. yeah. They're quite thick stone walls. You can just about hear the traffic out there. The windows open at the moment, but yeah. uh, it it's uh, it is an extraordinary uh, little haven to work away. And I think that one of the things that students today don't have is time. That nobody sits down and feels able to mm. spend three hours doing something. You know, four hours doing something, a week doing something. When I went to art school, I used to um, sometimes have. A drawing class that would go on for a week and you know you'd do a drawing in two days or lovely I mean uh, I, I, I think the students today would say well that's what you do in two days drawing mm. work slowly think yeah. <laughs> stand back and look take your time time based I, yeah 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 no there's no multitasking it was just this kind of little mm -mm. this focus thought so um, yeah, that's what freeze doesn't encourage. Mm. It, it, uh, it's quite the opposite, it doesn't freeze things. Yeah. Nice. Well, let's say thank you very much, Stephen Farley, at this point. Um, thank you. Anything else you want to show me around before I switch the machine on? No, um, I think that uh, you've got a good taste. You'll have to come back later. Uh, there's lots and lots to talk about, but you don't want to talk too much. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, thank you. Thanks very much for your time.
have been listening to Isotopica with me, Simon Tishko, here on Resonance, 104.4 FM. Today's guest was Professor Stephen Farthing. We drew many lines. I hope you enjoyed. And if you wish further details of this edition of Isotopica, previous editions of Isotopica, future editions of Isotopica, Stephen Farthing, or any of the issues which may or may not have affected you personally, this show then you can find those on the website which is www.theculture.net follow the links to resonance my advice is to stay tuned to resonance for at least another seven days when this show will be returning in fact it's actually probably sunday but if you listen to it for all that time you probably won't even notice it repeats because resonance is so wonderful that it confuses you and takes you away from This is Simon. Say goodbye. See you soon.